0: People are actually starting on the 1st of April. What are you hiring
1: people to do at a time like this?
0: Uh, well, we're in payment, so payment still goes on, especially digitally and e-commerce. So we've hired a marketer, we hire more devs, and um, we, we usually grow 20% month on month. Mm-hmm. But I think this month we are close to probably 40% uh, growth.
1: Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 136. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. A big thank you to the teams at Business Live and Multimedia Live for bringing our show to their audiences via businesslive.co.za and wherever Multimedia Live podcasts. Are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <sighs> My name is Andy Nemasugu, and I'm really glad you could join us. Now, listen, I don't need to tell you that we're living in extraordinary times, uh, What with most African nations only just starting to respond to the global COVID Nineteen crisis and we'll definitely be talking about that but do stick around for today's headline discussion about southern african fintech now given the brisk vc action that we've been seeing in the space over the last several months or so that's been led by nigeria for the most part we'd like to interrogate the current state of play within the southern african ecosystem joining me today in the co-host seat is very good friend of the show and self-proclaimed pathological optimist it is Simon Dingle. How are you doing man? Good and you, Andile. Doing just fine, actually. Um, actually in very good spirits. How are things at
2: let us these days? <laughs> People think a lot about that answer <laughs> at the moment, in the midst of the shutdown. used to ask people how they were and they'd always say busy. Yeah, I'm busy, I'm busy. And now when you ask people how they are, they're like, yeah, I need to think about that for a moment. (laughs) Dude,
1: I I suppose, look, my default is typically, you know, upbeat, uh, ready to go, excited. And I think I'm still mostly those things, except now I have to account for... Some preoccupying thoughts that uh, presumably are, you know, in everyone's minds right now.
2: Yeah, fair enough. But your how starts going at lettuce, and the answer is very well. We're very fortunate and lucky that we've had funding locked down to uh, get us through the storm. Of course, we don't know how long the storm's going to last. Yeah. Uh, but we should be okay. We've always been a remote working team. So for us, it's kind of business as usual. You know, all of our meetings were happening on Zoom, and, you know, we used Slack and Hangouts and. So um, work at the moment feels like just another day. We do have an office in Cape Town that isn't seeing as much love as it used to. But you know, lettuce is pumping. Our prototype is in the app store and we've had a few thousand downloads which helps us test the product. We haven't done any marketing yet, but generally it's good times. Is it going
1: to be sayonara for anyone who hasn't raised in time for this uh, disaster?
2: I don't know. I'm getting mixed answers from my friends in the VC space. You know, some funds are sticking to their commitments with new deals, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are doubling down and focusing on their existing portfolio and helping those companies get through tough times. So, um, you know, I ask some VCs and they're like, no, this is a really bad time to be looking for money. And then other funds I speak to seem to be business as usual. I suppose anecdotally, I hear more bad than good in terms of raising money right now.
1: And I wonder, like, are you guys uh, in any way sort of shedding leaves? (laughs) Do you see what I did there? Yeah, that's Uh, very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Are you trying to roll lighter? Because uh, that's also a trend I'm hearing about. I haven't quite spoken to enough founders to determine whether it's a trend in Africa or not. But this idea that everyone needs to be flying light, shedding loads they don't need to have, that might look like, I don't know, running with a skeleton staff, like not Mm. having a ton of offices across the space just bunkering down basically to survive and when you guys raised were you raising with that in mind i.e let's have enough money to outlast any storm or were your sort of raising objectives kind of different
2: so we've always been very lean for us cutting down doesn't mean much Uh, we've got a small office in cape town i suppose we could give that up but we wouldn't want to and it's a minor expense anyway we run out of a co-working space in the uk Uh, One of my co-founders is based there in Cambridge. Our developers are all over the place. We've got our front-end dev is in Canada, for example, but we're a very small team. Nobody takes outrageous salaries. My salary has been zero since we started Lettuce and uh, will remain so. So there really isn't anything to cut because we're already running so lean. I believe you have to have at least eight months in the bank because I know that a funding round always takes between six and eight months, you know. We have successfully raised money in less time before, but generally rule of thumb is a funding round is going to take you at least half a year before you see any any cash flow. So we keep at least 8 to 12 months in the bank if we can. Of course, that's easier said than done. And then when I can see darkness at the end of eight months, I know it's time to start another funding round.
1: So I have so many more questions for you, including my sense of like seeing big ticket sort of VC dropping at a time like this, you know, for the likes of Revolut, who I know you're a massive fan of. We're going to talk about that and a ton more a little later on. Let me first welcome our special guest to the show right here to help us frame the business case for the South African digital payments industry one of the co-founders and the Head of Research and Development at one of South Africa's NIPIA Digital Payments Processes, a company called Ozao. Hello and welcome to you, Mitch and Adams. Thank, thank you. Thanks for starting with me, guys. Uh, <laughs> are you seriously only just joining us? No, no, I was here the whole time. Um, Oh, right. Okay, cool. My bad for (laughs) getting into it with Simon. Simon and I are, yeah, we we can be rather um, awkward (laughs) as far as just for getting other people out in the room. Thank you so much for being here. Are you ready to help us unpack the business case for the South African digital payments industry?
0: Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. Mm.
1: I'm also hoping we'll get to how maybe that case might vary from market to market in the general Southern African region. I know South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Zambia, N- Namibia, these are all such uniquely different uh, markets. But I do imagine given your, your proximity to them, you might have a general sense of what is and is not a thing okay. vis-a-vis you know, you some know. of the vibe that South Africa is definitely leading the region on
0: yeah obviously with us we we're looking at the african expansion that's that's our focus south africa obviously being the the base where we're starting and then trying to expand out into, we went for the three big gdps in africa which is nigeria kenya and south africa and then I had to take a step back and uh, rather go for our neighbors, which would be Namibia Botswana and all of that.
1: Hey, Simon, you're here because I also hope to discuss the impact or perhaps non-impact of some of the more democratized fintech trends like blockchain and crypto. And I'd like you to sort of counterbalance this mainstream fintech conversation with um, everything, you know, everyone's come to know you for. So the plan is to float pertinent, market relevant signals and trends, and then, you know, unpack them candidly as, as we do here on the show. And no doubt given your ambitions at Ozzo, uh, Mitch, and your past and present entrepreneurial experience, your input will be invaluable. So thank you so much for being here. It's
0: a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right.
1: So guys, um, the big elephant in the room is a little virus called Covid nineteen. It really would not make any sense for us to to leap into any other discussion without addressing it in some way, shape, or form. I'm currently in the UK. It'll be quite useful to let people know that today is Tuesday, the 24th of March. By the time people hear this, we'll probably be you know at least a week or so into a lot of countries that seemed to lag the reaction trend to this crisis coming forward with sometimes, quote-unquote, draconian measures to counter uh, its influence. So in the UK, for instance, the, the Prime Minister here announcing... A lockdown as of midnight today it, it might be or yeah something like that so you know people have been pretty lax even in the uk about you know just on shopping being in each other's lives visiting each other partying going to bars doing all these things that frankly we shouldn't be doing if we're trying to contain the infection rate you guys in south africa just got an announcement yesterday yep yeah so what it's locked for you too
2: yeah lockdown from thursday I think we're all spending the morning trying to figure out exactly what it means. Um, But uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa gave a really good speech last night, I thought, um, showing decisive leadership and strong hands. You could see that he had been in endless negotiations for the previous few days on several fronts, you know, firstly getting big business on board with what he was about to announce in terms of a lockdown and obviously stakeholders in government, etc. But you could see he had also been um, doing a lot of work to set up a fund that will help small businesses get through this time, etc. And had not just announced that he was launching the fund, but it had a billion rand committed from two uh, big wealthy families in South Africa, uh, the Ruperts and the Oppenheimers, each giving a billion rand to that fund, which, you know, when you look at the USA printing $4 trillion to get them through the crisis, doesn't sound like a lot of money. But, you know, for South African small businesses and what it means, I think that's significant. And then obviously, opening up the fund to others. So, I was incredibly proud of our leadership last night. I really think that South Africa is doing all the right things in terms of COVID nineteen. I think we followed the South Korean model to a degree, which, of course, they've had the most effective reaction to to the pandemic so far. I mean,
0: on the fund as well, uh, we've been added as the payment mechanism on there. Oh, cool! Are you serious? Only this morning did they add us on there. So last night already, they had seventeen thousand hits on their webpage, but no payment mechanism. Which is not cool, <laughs> but uh, a today today should get better, yeah.
2: Jeez, look at you guys powering the revolution.
0: Well, look at you. And we basically waived our fee on that, so it's free processing, everything, and yeah. So we're just trying to assist where we can.
2: Well done.
1: Thanks. Prior to this announcement, like, has there been a, a marked difference in how people in your circles, your societies, perhaps the world around you as far as you can perceive it, like driving to work and things like that? Is there be a difference between how Cape Town's dealing with things and Johannesburg? Because we all know these are not the same country. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true. I was in Johannesburg two weeks ago, just before you know traveling became something that we shouldn't do. Although we probably shouldn't have been doing it back then either. But Johannesburg seemed to be on the same tip as Cape Town back then. People being cautious but not really knowing how to react. Some of the more thoughtful folk among us are staying at home and self isolating. Of course, back then, we didn't have any confirmed cases yet. I think the first one came out a couple of days after I left Joburg. Uh, So I can't really comment too much on our Joburgs reacting. Cape Town's been a mixed bag. South Africa's least integrated city has seen its various demographics reacting in different ways and uh, disappointing me throughout, to be quite honest, Um, you know. We've still had packed restaurants, despite the fact that they can't sell uh, alcohol after six o'clock uh, in some quadrants. Uh, you know, I mean, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, yes. um, not a virologist, <laughs> but um, I sort of get the, the rationale behind not selling alcohol, although it seems a bit arbitrary.
1: Oh, so, so that people are in their right minds and, and people are not uh, making yes, silly and, decisions. And, and
2: also they're less inclined to stick around or go somewhere after dinner. You know what I mean? So I think it does have an impact on social behavior. It does seem a little bit arbitrary, and I don't know if you saw the speech where Beckett Clele announced it, but let's just say he he didn't convince me very well in his speech. The
1: police commissioner.
2: Yeah, but uh, but on the whole, I think the Department of Health has been fantastic. The presidency has been exemplary, and I think South Africans are keeping it together. I did start a a thread on Twitter where I asked people to name and shame South African companies that were forcing people to go to work who didn't have to, and it's just exploded. And I told people, look, if you're scared of getting into trouble from your boss, DM me, and then I'll mention the company without mentioning you. And I didn't think many people would do that, but dude, my my inbox on Twitter is broken. It's literally overflowing from people telling me about their horrible bosses and horrible companies that even after the president's speech about staying at home, still forcing people who have laptops and are able to work at home to come into the office. In one case, a 3,000 uh, head office in the middle of the Cape Town CBD, and they're still forcing everybody to come to work. It's, it's ridiculous. So, unfortunately, not all of corporate South Africa has been treating this the way they should. Mm.
1: And how are you guys doing it at, at Ozzo? We we strive to be the
0: best company to work for in the country, which is quite a hell of a <laughs> statement to make and, and, and a goal to reach. I think about a week ago already, we decided everybody works from home. We can do everything via voice call, so we use Microsoft Teams. And yeah, it's been great. We've been able to have the meetings through this, uh, all interviews. We're still hiring people. <laughs> and And people are actually starting on the 1st of April, uh, and they're going to have to join. What are you hiring people to do at a time like this? Uh, well, we're in payments, so payment still goes on, and especially digitally and e-commerce. So we've hired a marketer, we hire more devs, and um, yeah, they're coming on board, and, and they're just going to have to join VC style. And hopefully in 21 days, they meet us at our office. Since a week ago, we've decided remote work, uh, everybody working from home, and uh, that's it's been going good so far no change in business really
1: right so i mean let's talk about what you guys think the impact is going to be in the short to medium term on the financial services industry perhaps the fintech scene specifically it sounds to me like you know it's reasonable to expect a company like ozzo that you guys will see to see a boost in business
0: so Firstly, I, I didn't answer or add my, my comments to your first question. Oh, right, <laughs> so right, right, right. South right. Africa, and Joburg Cape Town type thing. So I would say in the last week, from last weekend, the outskirts of Joburg definitely has been complying. So a lot less people at shops, uh, a lot less people driving out on the roads, and a lot more people working at home. But if you go into the, the kind of hubs... Uh, there were still people going on there, just carrying on as normal. And I went out to Soweto as well. I don't think there was care in the world there. But I would say that the major stores, restaurants, all of those guys shut down and they were complying with the rules um with regards to alcohol. But then you still got your taverns, your shabins, they were still going and on. And I can
1: imagine, I, I can imagine it's probably the same people raiding Woolworths are the ones staying home and happy to sort of surf the internet on their, you know, uh, high speed broadband but I imagine there are people who have to get to work or at least in their minds can't do without like, you know, making it in and out of town or or CBDs in order to make their incomes. Is, do you think that's a fair assessment?
0: Yes, yes. No, 100% uh, it is a fair assessment. I'd, I Actually, I can't pinpoint what type of person does this rating. Um, but I have seen on, on Facebook a lot of sales uh, going on in the marketplace of like facial masks, 60,000 units. Cleaning, uh, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of companies selling, uh, cleaning detergents, hands, sanitizer, a whole bunch of stuff and, and in large amounts at the time. So I don't know where they're getting the stock from. Perhaps these guys went and raided the stores, kept it, and now they're selling it. But, uh, yeah, something has happened there <laughs> somewhere. And, uh, yeah, it's created a opportunity for many people. But I I do feel that also people are not thinking the entire situation through and through. So you will find that uh, you go to a retail store and the cashier has some gloves on and they eat some hand sanitizer. But uh, you still, I mean, the packages that you're buying, I mean, milk cartons and all of that was touched at some point that has some germs on it, the, the keypad you're putting your pin in on when you're using an your ATM card, the cash you're handing over. I mean, it, it has germs, and the germs are sitting on the gloves probably, so it's protecting the cashier, but uh, the germs are still there. It's moving around.
1: The horse is bolted on preventing the spread of the scourge. It's a situation of how quickly we'll allow this to happen, in which case... Yeah, I don't know that, you know, any of us can 100% not be exposed to the virus. It's a question of if we do end up contracting it, it's not because we're careless or because, you know, we've not been doing what we can to to be good stewards of our presence, i.e. being places we don't have any business being if we don't need to be there. Yeah. Taxis. taxis,
0: this is a major problem. Uh, it's people packed into taxis, sixteen, fifteen 15 to 16 people in, there in close proximity to each other. I don't know how you can get away from that. Uh, and and you pass passing money up and down. There's no digital way of paying it.
1: Ozzar hasn't figured that out, has they?
0: Ooh, we're busy with it. We're busy working on something at the moment. So I guess regards to our business, we have different verticals, obviously. Uh, so we have your, our retail guys, like a take a law for instance, that does e-commerce. And then you got sports betting.
1: A business I hate. I don't mind telling you. You don't like sports betting? I despise gambling of any kind.
0: Oh. Yeah, so, but just, just as a disclaimer. Yes. <laughs> there's, there, there's online gambling and there's sports betting. It's two different licenses. Uh, the one is a game of chance and the one is a game of skill. So where there is no ability to really rig anything, that's sports betting because hopefully the odds are all there and that's what's legal and that's why we're allowed to Process for these guys, but an online casino that's illegal, obviously, so yeah, on the sports bet in front, obviously all sports events have been cancelled, which means what do these guys bet on then? It's, it's affected them quite uh, majorly, but they've, they've gotten quite uh, innovative, so eSports has kicked in all of a sudden. The one thing I've noticed is it's all international tournaments, so perhaps there's an opportunity for South African eSports league to open up somehow. And then uh, they got some stuff called live betting. Uh, So they would take like a a roulette table and they have a camera on top of it. And then they throw a ball in there and then people start betting online. So that's that's the innovative moves that they've done in order to sustain themselves there. From a a retail side, that's been booming, obviously. Uh, A lot of people stocking up a, a company like OneCart that they they buy from your normal brick and mortar stores. And then they deliver to you and they do it all online. Where these stores usually don't have an online presence, uh, they do it for you. So these guys are all started really pumping volume. And guys like Mr. Delivery, Food Delivery Services, they also pump in. So our, we, we usually grow 20% month on month. Mm-hmm. But I think this month we are close
1: to probably 40% Mercy. uh growth. What do you think when you hear that
2: all this, Simon? I'm trying. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get my head around people voting on a ball rolling around on their screen as a game of skill. I was like, I was thinking the same. I was just <laughs> biting my tongue. I was like, my goodness, hey, man, a uh, pivot of notes. I'll tell you what, though. In my opinion, it's yeah. all gambling whether you're buying Bitcoin, betting on the stock market, betting on sports you know it it all comes down to like some form of delusional astrology (laughs) as far as i'm concerned you did get a fair
1: heads up uh, mitch you know before we got on the mic that this whole journalistic imaginary of you can sort of separate issues from like feelings and and strongly held positions or convictions i think is absolute nonsense i think it's important for us to sort of out ourselves out our preferences out our inclinations or leanings or biases frankly and in this particular case when it comes to gambling i'm 100% 100% opposed to anything That even hints of, of Gambling whether it's technically Gaming versus say gambling But that doesn't mean we don't need to discuss it and understand It and, and you know and, and appreciate that There are other people who don't see things the way I do Right does that make sense?
0: 100% look I, I have the same model Conflict I would I'd rather Say that uh, but I, I've been in Payments for oh, 14 years Now and and when I started Online gambling was legal I mean Speak was doing quite a bit Back then and um yeah, I was involved in payments already then and, and seeing all the money go through and no matter what my opinion was on it, these guys were still going to gamble. If you take it offline, guys are going to play dice in the street.
1: Gotcha.
2: Simon, I interrupted you, though. Uh, sorry, I feel like uh, I distracted us because your question wasn't really about, about, <laughs> <Fair enough>. about <laughs> Fair gambling. Enough. Which, but I think
1: it's, it's, it's good you did.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I consider everything that we do as well gambling in terms of, you know, investing in a startup is a gamble as well. So I'll be the contrarian to your view, dealer, in that I don't care about gambling. So long as people are burning money that they can afford to lose, what they do with their money is their business. For them, it's just entertainment. What I hate is exploitation of poor people. But anyway, let's, when I hear what's uh, going down at Ozo, it sounds like you guys are an absolute space rocket, which is awesome, and just blitzing your way up through the atmosphere. So it's, it's good to hear about local fintech startups just killing it. Well done.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. So I wonder whether there's uh, an opportunity to exploit in this whole situation for a company like Lettuce. If so, like, let me in on that.
2: Well, you know, we we sort of focused on the open banking space. We're a global product from day one, but we're very focused on Europe and the UK because of how mature open banking is in those markets due to what's happened from a regulatory perspective. So, you know, in Europe, they've got PSD2, which has just opened up the payment uh, space. But it's also meant that financial institutions have to open up API stacks to their customers across the board. Um, So from banks to, you know, uh, stock trading platforms, etc., Plus, it's the way that fintech startups just build technology because we know what we're doing. You you build API stacks in from day one. So we think there's an opportunity for a company to be an over-the-top service provider in the banking space the same way that companies like WhatsApp were over-the-top service providers in the telecom space. And we think that this new regulation is forcing a sort of a net-neutral ecosystem where the -the over-the-top services will win. And the the rest of the incumbent, if you will, uh, banking and other financial product providers will become more like plumbers. You know, just as you don't get your front end services from Vodacom or MTN or your telecoms operator, you prefer to get it from Netflix or WhatsApp or Facebook. We think the same thing is going to happen in the the fintech space. So that's kind of that's kind of Lettuce's tip. Uh, it's going to be a tough game because we're going to have a lot of competitors. It's a very it's a very crowded market already, and it's getting fuller. But we do think we've got a unique spin on it. So payments is important to us, uh, but you know payments is a race to the bottom. There's some companies, and it looks like Ozo is one of them, who's you know found innovative business models to make money out of payments. But for 99% of the fintech companies focusing on payments, there's just no margin. So you have to be really smart about how you make money in that game. You either have to have ludicrously high volumes of payments going through or you're just cupping water in a never-ending race to, to the bottom. So, Every time oh, I yeah. encounter sort of uh, payments, startups like you guys, typically
1: this is the kind of information we're told, hey, you know, we're 10 million or 15 million sort of transactions into the game. Like, we've only been here just five years. This is your story. You know, 10 billion rands worth of transactions served. To, to Simon's point, is money being made? And, you know, are you not just the plumbing? Uh, so firstly, on that 10 billion, it took us a while to get to our first
0: billion, uh, processing. It took us almost over a year. Our last billion took us two months. Our next billion is going to take us one and a half months so far. And then we're going to be eating a billion every month. And then yeah, it keeps going. So there's a snowball effect that's happening. But on the opening banking aspect, opening banking is, is what we want. It's, it's basically what we're trying to do. We've created this uh, automated EFT because open banking doesn't exist in South Africa. So we used to, I think for the last three years, attend a conference in Amsterdam called Money 2020 with the hope of playing in the PSD2 uh, realm, which is open banking in, in Europe. And we wanted to get a set-up office there and get a license and all of that. And exactly to Simon's point, in Europe, you cannot... Get in there and, and, and win on margin. It's, it's just too saturated. The market has massive players there. You're going up against Google, PayPal, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay. And, and these guys already are integrating into a whole bunch of, uh, systems all over there. I mean, the way I saw it, a company similar to us there was Trustly and they basically got East Europe taken up. They integrated into 3,000 banks. It's ridiculous. And then you got Central Europe is so forth. And then you got Ideal, which is in Amsterdam. And they do more money in that one country than what we've done so far in our five years. So there's a lot of money to go around. There's high consumerism, but the margins are going to be smaller because of the competition. And when we were at this conference, there was a lot of talk around Asia, what's happened in Asia, and how the dust has settled, and who do we claim as the winners in the payment space. And then they started talking about the next battlefield being South America and Brazil and Argentina and Chile, what's going to happen there. Uh, But nobody was actually looking at Africa. And I was actually looking at this map and seeing the lights switch on, but Africa was just dark. And as people were walking around, we had a stall there and they saw us and they saw Africa and they were thinking, you know, what happened in India and China and a billion people in Africa. Could you uh, perhaps be our payment partner for Africa? This this is the question that we constantly kept on getting. So we started these relationships with these European companies and changed our focus from going into the PSD2 market, but to rather create digital payments for Africa and to unite Africa as one somewhat in a digital payment space. And that's been our mission probably for the last two years now. Uh, that is a lot easier decided to do than done because there's obviously different regulations in each country and uh, that's been very difficult just to navigate in south africa you can just imagine it in in other regions so if i look at it like that africa where it's still developing and you put that investment into it now give it five to ten years there is a lot of potential and there's a lot of money to be made there. Uh, if everybody had the buying power of, let's say, $10 each in this continent, yeah, there's, there's going to be.
1: And I mean, at this point in your growth trajectory, are you guys profitable? Are you cash flow positive? Or is this still a VC case in the making? So
0: we've hit profitability many times and then got slapped and said, we've invested in you. You're not supposed to be making money. You're supposed to be spending money. Grow.
1: Yeah, you know, that so, sounds like VCs to me. Yeah, so <laughs> um
0: yeah, we, we 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 get money, we then hit profit, and then we start spending again. And then we we get more money, we hit profit, and we start spending again. Uh and it's a land grab, literally. That's what's happening at the moment. And and I would say a lot of these companies are coming out of South Africa. So you got uh, PayGate, which is representing DPO, you got us, you got Payu, um, you got MyGate, which got taken over by Wirecard, and all these guys are trying to get into Africa. And you got some Nigerian companies like Flutterwave also trying to do the same thing and Paystack. And in Kenya, I don't feel like they're really getting out, although DPO does come out of Kenya. And they've used Paygate as their facility to get out into Africa. And with regards to the value chain, I mean, if you look at traditional payment systems, which is CARD, there is a value chain that happens. There's the bank in the background. There's your card systems, your card rails, Mastercard and Visa, and then there's a payment service provider at the end of that. So there's three points of payment in this. The bank has to facilitate uh, interchange price, which is a set fee, and then you got Mastercard putting in their fee, and then you got the payment service providers putting in their fee. And then depending on your profile as a customer. If you a high-risk customer, for instance, an airline is quite high risk. If you jump on a plane and you fly and it was a fraudulent transaction, you can't you know, get that flight back. It's done. Uh, the expense is already spent. So the risk is a lot higher versus selling shoes where you can actually try and get the product back. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that they try with liability shifts, uh, uh, one-time pins, and something called 3D Secure. But, uh, at the end of the day, there is a risk and there is a value chain and therefore it's a lot more expensive for these guys and margins are there. For us, we literally, we're using something called screen scraping. Uh, so we've created an automation tool that launches a, a internet web page in the background and we drive the process on behalf of the user in the front. We skin it a lot nicer and, uh, we found a way to do it pretty fast and to do it at scale where we can do uh, let's say 6,000 transactions, concurrent transactions at the time, uh, which which is quite intense for for an EFT transaction, which allows us to do uh, a transaction within 20 seconds for a person. Uh, it's not credit card speed, but it's, it's good for uh, EFT, and it also makes an EFT feel a lot more real-time. So we don't have that card aspect in it. Uh, we don't have a bank fee in it. We literally just have our cost, our running cost which we can keep quite low. And therefore, we can give our fee at a lower fee than uh, what card is doing at the moment. And also, if you just look at the demographic of people uh, spending online and, and using digital currency, it's a lot smaller. The market we're looking at is people that haven't been taking part in the digital economy up until now. Now we're giving them the ability to do this. Therefore, we're not fighting over slices of pies, but rather making the pie bigger.
1: So, I mean, Simon, I'm listening listening to Mitch thinking, if I didn't know any better, he was making the same case, you know, a Bitcoin proponent might be making for Bitcoin as uh, an alternative to what's come before. Except Mitch is talking about building on top of a system that I know you have a ton of issues about, not just philosophically, but in all the inefficiencies that are ingrained in that system. So my question to you is pragmatically setting aside the philosophical aspects of what we tend to discuss every time you come in. um, What do you make of the kind of progress, you know, Mitch is outlining here? It sounds like they're bringing efficiencies, they're making payments far more accessible, easier, they're solving problems for incumbents, they're solving problems for people who perhaps have never even transacted digitally before. And, you know, they seem to be able to do this at scale, cheaply, or relatively cheaply to what's come before and, you know, the profiteering that, you know, banks are famous for in in years gone by. Why is this perhaps... Not far enough, as far as you know, your thinking, as far as what democratized finance needs to look like, a la crypto and and blockchain based solution.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's definitely far enough for where the world is now, and it, it you know, it frankly, it, it 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 solves a problem that the banks should have solved themselves a very long time ago, but they hadn't, in that their front end suck and And if you were able to to do an instant EFT through your bank, you know there wouldn 't be a gap for a product like this because the banks are so horrendous at what they do there 's a gap for a solution like this I suppose my my concern and i 've been involved in a business that uses screen scraping before, so just for context for people who haven 't heard of screen scraping before essentially what you 're doing is you 're pretending to be a web browser and you 're logging into the bank 's internet banking as if you were the user now. It's a tried-and-tested technology. It used to be very sketchy in the beginning, but now it's it's fairly solid and fairly bulletproof. One of the risks you have is that the banks hate it because in their mind, you're circumventing their security. You're getting in between them and the user, and you're asking the user for their username and password, which the banks are spending millions of rands in marketing to tell people not to give to third parties. And then you're taking it a step further, and you're asking them for their OTP that the bank is going to SMS to them as well. So when you speak to the banks... They hate fintechs that are doing um, instant EFTs, but even they will acknowledge that these these companies are filling a gap in the market that they have failed to to fill themselves. So, you know, you guys have obviously built a fantastic product. You obviously know what you're doing on the back end as well because it's scalable and it works and it's bulletproof and it's giving customers a better experience than they'll get from the back, etc. I suppose my question would be, um, what happens when the banks do retaliate against uh, instant EFT providers you know, with, with one or two exceptions, because we know, for example, uh, Nedbank are building out their own APIs. They're all going to have APIs for you uh, eventually. But until then, is there a concern, I suppose, uh, from Ozo's perspective that the banks might retaliate because, in their minds, you're breaking their security stack?
0: So, I guess that already happened. So, when we started out, that's all we got was uh, retaliation from the banks, uh, letters from lawyers, uh, constantly. That, that was probably our first two years of running but uh, look, we followed uh, what was seen as the right way to do things then. So we we are PCI DSS compliant, which stands for Payment Card Industry Data Security Standards. Uh, and that is a standard created for the card payment system to protect card data. Now, we don't have any card data, but the security standard is still there and it's something that people follow and it's what they think is the best standard. It's still good with regards to security standards. Um, but it's very specific to cards. Well, anyways, can I, we can I just that. jump
1: in there and just say, if I understand that correctly, those standards uh, are because obviously when you swipe a card, you know your personal data is actually directly being interacted with, right? When yes, the transaction yes. occurs, right?
0: Yeah, so your card number, all of that is is, is in plain sight. And, and that needs to be encrypted and transported in a specific way. And that standard sets how it should happen. It also sets a, a bunch of all other stuff like... Uh, how your people interact with a system? How you give roles out, access, change control. So it's it's a lot broader than that, and it's a good standard to follow. So we've taken it on, and we've self-regulated ourselves in a way where we brought account numbers and any other personal information. We deem sensitive and and we put it into scope with PCI and look so we have that certification. Then we went to Parser.
1: And and do you guys apply cryptography and or you know leverage the blockchain in any way to do this?
0: Not the blockchain. We did look at the blockchain. I just felt it was a bit of overkill for us. So we do use AES encryption, which is the highest form of encryption at this point. And uh yeah, that works for us and it, it falls within the standard. We then also went to Parza. We signed up as a third-party payment provider as well as a systems operator. And we followed the rules. We, we submitted the documents they needed, any transparency they needed from us, we've, we've given that. And we got our sponsoring bank to be uh, NetBank and worked with NetBank to actually build this API that you have today. Um, so I think that's only going to go live into production at the end of this year. But we've been working on it for years now. Uh, same with ABSA, same with Capitech, all the banks. We've been working with them on APIs. It's just taking really long to get out. Banks have had something called Vision 2025, where they say there will be one standard way of doing an API. So once you've integrated into this one type of API, you just kind of copy and paste that to all the banks and then you, you have access to it. Obviously you have, there's some regulations you have to follow. You have to be compliant and they have to check a few checkboxes in order to allow you into the system. But once you're in, you're in. And yeah, there is a risk in that, that uh, it does open it up for more competition to come in, and then it becomes a price war, I guess, at that point where people undercut each other. And that's why it's a land grab at this stage. So that's why we get getting funding, in order to help us accelerate as fast as possible, to get into the consumer's mind as fast as possible, and to develop that trust, because developing trust is very difficult. Banks, by default, the moment you come out of the womb, a bank is trust for you. But I think in recent years, um, with a lot of scandals that have happened, uh, with the last bit of millennials and this new generation coming out, the Gen Zs, they've kind of lost trust in, uh, in your incumbents. So they, they're looking for somebody to sell them trust and to prove it to them. And that's what we're trying to do at this point. So our focus is
1: lower LSM, especially in South Africa. And LSM is living standard measure? Yes. So you guys are targeting what? Lower LSM, which would be what? uh, Yeah,
0: informal markets. Basically
1: low-income markets.
0: Yeah, low-income, underbanked, unbanked people, people that are using, that don't have bank accounts, they're using e-wallet at the moment to gain money and then withdrawing all of their funds and putting themselves at risk somehow. By having so much money on them. At the E-wallets,
1: time. again, a service popularized by F&B. But now most banks in South Africa have a version of this uh, wallet system that allows you to send and receive money without actually having a bank account with them. Yes. Uh, using their ATMs or using, you know, supermarkets, tills and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just need a, a cell phone number as a, as a recipient of the funds and then uh, whoever's paying you goes into the app and sends it through. But the problem there is it's bank closed loop and we're trying to make a bank agnostic system. We decided to change the definition of bank from bank to money silo. So any place where you can store value of funds, to us, that's the money silo. So every single bank today is a money silo, but then so is an e-wallet a money silo, so is a crypto wallet a money silo. And uh, for us, if you have a money silo, you can make payments. So we bring in all of that into it. And 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 that's why I think there is the slight pivot happening from an EFT niche to an alternative payments niche. Look, we, we're we going to do this uh, land grab at the moment. But if we fail in the land grab somewhat to mitigate our risk uh, for a price in the future, we've decided to go into the rest of Africa, into your Botswana's, into your Namibia's Botswana where e-commerce isn't thriving just yet. And if I look at it, when I got into payments, PayPal was still pretty decent, which actually came out of South Africa, interestingly enough. But there's there's a platform called WooCommerce. It's uh, the easiest e-commerce startup platform that you can find. You go online, you download it, or you sign up with one of your service providers and you click WordPress. It installs a blog for you and then you install a WooCommerce plugin that converts it into an e-commerce site for you. That comes with pre-installed default payment gateways, which is always PayPal. PayPal doesn't work in South Africa. It doesn't work in the rest of Africa. So they need a default payment mechanism that works. Well,
1: out. I'll correct you there. I mean, we do, uh, I, I do use PayPal. It is an absolute nightmare. Um, it does work, <laughs> but you do have to be banked with FNB. Yes. And technically, that's not how it's supposed to work. Simon, let's address this open banking thing, because it does sound like the banks are preempting a future that's going to be open banking led. They're sort of fighting it on one hand, but knowing full well that this is where the world is going to go and they have to get with the program, but they're going to sort of milk their position all the way there, right? So I wonder if, you know, when you view sort of like the open banking dynamic in Europe, which I think is best in breed around the world right now you know do you see that and think if things never went further than this right and if like the bitcoin experiment or experiments like ethereum were to fail completely we wouldn't be in such a bad position if everyone properly adopted open banking
2: so the truth is that banks aren't gonna go away at least not anytime soon not because we need them not because we don't have better systems now but because they fit into the human narrative so strongly you know as mitch was saying a lot of people associate banks with trust you don't have to spend too much time in the industry or know too much about banks for banks to be the absolute last institution you want to trust with anything if you just look at history. But but for the most part people do trust banks and that's not going to change. So You know, as easy and as secure as it is to store your own keys for a Bitcoin wallet, for example, I know that I've got friends and family members who I'll never convince to do such a thing. You know, we've seen already in South Africa, Investec, for example, uh, one of the big banks in South Africa has announced that they're launching custody services for digital assets. So the smart banks are waking up to what's happening in the world, um, to the the cryptocurrency movement and the fact that people are going to use this stuff and it's not going away. And they're incorporating it into their product offering. So I'd imagine in not very long, you'll probably be able to store your Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in your Investec account. And then people will still be using banking and open banking is probably still something to be talked about then because, you know, you're now back in the banking system. When you make a deposit at the bank, the thing you're depositing ceases to be yours legally. Your money in the bank is not your money. It belongs to your bank legally and they can do whatever they want with it and they'll probably give it back to you unless they fall on hard times in which case they don't have to. And the same will be true of your cryptocurrency. When you put your Bitcoin into your bank account, it will no longer be your Bitcoin. It will be the bank's Bitcoin and they can decide whether or not to give it back to you. And that's fine. It works for most people. Um, it also gives them peace of mind that if they get hit by a bus, the bank will give their children all of what they owed, hopefully. Um, but also
1: isn't the trade-off also that um, Bitcoin you know, is welcome to the big leagues and is, is no longer out in the cold, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all some, massively On some level, without that dynamic... Bitcoin maintains this weird sort of otherworldly outsider situation which doesn't help even people who are crazy Well,
2: about I do think that the Bitcoin community could do a better job of educating people because we really don't need banks to store Bitcoin and you really can store your Bitcoin in a way that you're never going to lose it. But let's Unless not... you're
1: trying to capture value in, the, in this horrible capitalist manner that yeah. um, a lot of people who now own Bitcoin are trying to do and which is totally not linked to wide, perhaps I'll exists. I'll be honest, I way. think
2: that's a false narrative as well that people have been carried away with. That's, you know, that's perhaps true for a very small segment of the of the community but you know, for the most part, Bitcoin works, and it works very well. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there at the moment. And people, understandably, they don't care how the technology works. They they hear this blockchain thing, they don't know what it is. Unfortunately, a lot of them are decision makers at big companies, so they will be misled by enterprise uh, software providers that are selling them blockchain solutions for things you don't need a blockchain for. Um, because the moment you've got a trusted third party, you don't need a blockchain. Um, but let's not get into <laughs> let's not get into that one either.
1: Right. This is why but, you're here, Simon. I mean, I mean I'm. Just- An opinionated podcaster, and I'm inclined to things I can see, touch or feel, and totally understand. That's not necessarily the best way to try and sort of wrap your mind around what's great or potentially worrying about something like uh you know cryptocurrency. But that said, Mitch, you've you've articulated quite nicely this idea that the the open banking wave or the the trend that's starting to build momentum, how it's a double-edged sword for you guys. Because I wonder where, given where we are in the interim, what your sense of what I perceive to be this obsession with trying to create walled gardens mm. to protect brand, to protect sort of books of business that I think is is still pretty mm. much indicative of how banking is done, especially in South Africa, given the, the unique quasi-monopolistic or cartel-like advantages the banking fraternity has in South Africa. Yeah. Even though in the background, as you've described, there's these pragmatic moves to sort of sandbox activities that have to do with open banking and almost deal with folks like you who they'd truly rather not have to deal with that is my thinking around that sound am i seeing things the way they are or what am i missing
0: i would say that's all they they used to be and for certain banks that think they are the innovation leaders in the banking systems it's still that way um but for most other banks they have decided partnering is the way name and shame
1: who are you talking about no but generally speaking (laughs) you probably can't say exactly give me give us a sense of who's leaning into the future and who's trying to pull the reins back i guess i I have to name and
0: shame here it's the only way so there's only one bank that's fmb that doesn't work with anybody else they always keep themselves different from everything they feel that they are innovative enough to do everything on their own Whereas the other banks have decided to open themselves up to, to partnerships. And uh, and I think it's working out great It's stopped this animosity, stop this fighting mm-hmm. that happens between fintechs and banks, and, and it stopped confusing the end consumer as well. So you see stuff like Snapscan working with Standard Bank, uh, carry uh, with NetBank. Uh, Capitech's is also coming up with quite a few innovative stuff on their side, but it's not just Capitech uh, creating it. It's FinTechs working with the banks to create great software for uh, the end users, which I think is 100% what the EU was thinking about when they spoke about PSD2 was all about the end consumer. It's not about the banks. It's not about the FinTechs. It's about how can you give the end consumer a better service and, and more competitiveness in the market. So, eventually, it would have to become law. It has to be driven by the government, somehow. Um, I think that's how MPEZA blew up in Kenya. That's how Paytm became great in India. It's it's the only way to get everybody on board is if the government says, you have to do this now. And, for instance, FNB has told us that. They will not work with us until the government says we, they must work with us. So, that's just the power for the cause at the moment. And we have to accept it,
1: and go with it yeah this is interesting this is the first time mobile money has come up in this conversation which is surprising to me especially since you now have a pan-african focus you know in yeah. order to solve for not just being the plumbing right it's surprising to me that up until now we haven't talked about mobile money as what i perceive to be i suppose the way forward <laughs> yeah not the way forward necessarily as the way i see it but really like the your biggest competition for the minds of men as far as and onboarding the masses and the, the whole sort of inclusion narrative which I think you you alluded to yeah um, in a lot of circles at a lot of conferences it's it's almost a foregone conclusion that this is going to be a mobile telco led mobile money first situation and um, I haven't heard you say much about that so again it's up to the regulators right so I mean you would think it's it's, it's a simple
0: thing technically it's a very simple thing to run but if you if you read the e-money white paper that the Saab has released, um, they, they discuss the... Sorry, who? Saab, South African Reserve Bank.
1: Oh, right. And
0: and uh, the rest of our, our neighbors would take that directive and implement it because they see us as the forerunners in, in legislation. So Botswana, Namibia, Mozambique would all take this on. In that e-money white paper, it stipulates the need for mobile wallets for e-money and it stipulates the risk as well involved with rogue third parties creating their own wallets and creating currencies and even if you base it one for one on a rand managing those funds what the risk is involved in that and then he goes on to say that the banks are regulated in a specific way and they follow a certain standard and they know how to take deposits and how to secure their funds for somebody and also keeps in mind the economy of the country. So they say the only people that they will give a license to are the banks. So the banks have the ability to create e-wallets. Telcos cannot do it. Uh, But then it goes on to say that a third party payment provider or a systems operator can license that license from the bank. As long as the bank has taken them through a rigorous process of screening, uh, they can then unsell the e-wallet. So from outside, uh, I mentioned it earlier, NetBank is our sponsoring bank. So we're working with NetBank to take an e-wallet out into South Africa and hopefully the rest of Africa. Other guys are working with other different banks, but you do have rogue guys out there that just say, OK, I have a bank account in my system. I will section off this portion of that account to this person. The regulation is going to get them and they're going to be in big trouble. Uh, Also, as an end user, you're putting yourself at risk uh, because if something goes wrong there, these guys really can just do anything with their funds.
1: That's fascinating. So, in summary, what I'm hearing is a sort of success story a la Mpesa in South Africa is dead in the water because of the regulatory sort of status quo.
0: I think a fintech can get it right. If you look, MTN tried it here, right? I think they started something called more money now as well. But Previously, Impeza failed, but to them, failure was 4 million users. If we have 4 million users on our system, we're not going to see that as a failure. We're going to keep pushing and, and keep growing. So it's about time and what your measurement of success is. Um, and I, I think if they spent more time at it, it would have grown to a, a decent place. Uh, with regards to Safaricom in mean, Kenya, they have the government on board which is why they could roll it out that fast and and get so much support. There's no way another e-wallet product can go into Kenya right now. But if an e-wallet product started becoming the, the dominant product in, let's say, South Africa, Botswana, Tanzania, Rwanda and all the neighboring countries around Kenya... I think the Kenyans would need to start swap or switching between the two. And it's possible that Impeza
1: will fade away because of that. And I mean, my understanding of what you guys do and how you make money, um, it doesn't actually matter who... Or what sort of leads the way on this? You're willing to be the pipes in the back, helping it to make to happen.
0: More the pipes in the front, <laughs> the taps rather. <laughs> so the bank would be the pipe, and uh, I mean Nedbank's Southern African uh, footprint is there, and then they've partnered with Eco or Echo Bank. Yeah. So I mean there, there is definite reach. There's other banks could partner with Standard Bank, which has a bigger footprint in Africa as well. But I mean using a bank who has the plumbing, who has the infrastructure, who has the footprint, and we just the
1: taps in the front that people turn to open up to get the water in, there's a definite opportunity. And so is trying to convert like major telcos on the continent part of your biz dev, or are you just content to sort of focus on, on, on the banks for now?
0: No, we're definitely working with, uh, with Vodacom and MTN um, because that's the quickest way to a consumer, right? So they, that will be our distribution route. Right. So probably let me change that statement on the plumbing to say the banks are more the reservoirs with the initial plumbing pipes. And uh, then your telcos are your distribution points with the piping running out and
1: the taps Yeah, because I'm trying to create a a framework in my mind for understanding, you know, the addressable landscape and, and who gets what and who controls what. And yeah, that's really helpful for me to see. So... You know, Simon, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking back to the last time you were on the show and you made a bold prediction, which for the most part has so far held up, which is that Libra was going to go nowhere and that regulation was going to be what, you know, basically <laughs> made sure it wouldn't. You know, linking it to what, you know, what Mitch has been talking about, I think one of the oversimplifications, especially... Whenever we talk about fintech in Africa, strangely, I mean we have fifty-four countries, we have a myriad of, of countries with all these different sort of legal and regulatory dynamics, and yet it's often here where the oversimplification about the role of regulation is often made when people talk about Africa as this one big place, right? And, and yet, you know, you you were obviously onto that dynamic, not just from an African perspective, but in an international perspective, when you looked at Libra and you thought Hang on a minute. Like, they're not going to let this happen.
2: I think there's a, there's a lot that's possible within the regulation. So, for example, if you if you look at mobile wallets, you just need a banking partner. And then, you know, if you're partnered with a banking partner and you're ticking all of the boxes that are required by PASO or whoever the authority is that governs the nature of your business, then, you know, you you can still do a hell of a lot. We've also got um, sandbox programs, you know, that the FSA in the UK runs, for example, the South African Reserve Bank is working on their sandbox program for South African fintechs. Um, there's a lot one can do within regulation. And while the regulation fails at most of what it sets out to do is prevent crime and money laundering, which is why the banks pay so so many fines every year. Um, for enabling money laundering is because it 's so easy to do, and part of what enables it is regulation <laughs> so be- besides all of that, g- regulation for the most part is there for a good reason and and you can still do a lot within the framework so long as you you know are applying your mind. To it, there's, there's a lot of scope for innovation. And I, I guess Ozo is an example of, of what can be done. But you're right, it's, you know, looking at, at African markets, and we forget that innovation is difficult. I think when Vodacom and Nedbank, um, which were the duo that wanted to bring a Pesa to South Africa, when they gave it the third go, I really think they thought that it was going to work this time because uh, they had concluded that the big reasons that it failed before were distribution. And they believed that they had a last mile solution sorted out and they launched it yet again in South Africa and they failed yet again to replicate the success that M-Pesa had had in in Kenya. But I do think that that word mobile money is, is starting to lose meaning because it's just money. You know, just like people used to talk about the mobile internet and do you have a Mobi site? And now we realize it's just the internet, guys, you know. A vast majority of web traffic now comes from mobile devices. So we don't talk about the mobile internet anymore. We just talk about the internet.
1: Do you think it's helpful to think of mobile money, though, as the digital payments industry as controlled or happening at the behest of like the mobile telcos?
2: I tend to take the telcos out of the equation because I just don't think they're that important. They're obviously an enabler for the network itself. I don't think they have a role to play in the services layer. And I don't think they should have a role to play in the services layer. Are you talking about a world you'd like to see or the world as it is? I think it's actually playing out this way, Andile, because if you look at who's winning in just about every other vertical of over-the-top services, it's not the telcos. If you look at Safaricom's role in M-Pesa, that's fairly unique, what they've managed to pull off there.
1: Or Econet with EcoCash.
2: Yeah. Let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, I bank with First National Bank. Where do I do most of my banking? On my phone using their app. In the UK, I bank with Revolut. Where do I do all of my banking? On the Revolut app on my phone. What does the telecoms operator have to do with that? Nothing. Is it mobile money? Uh, Not really. It's just money. (laughs) But if you know what you're doing and you're building consumer services today, you're building them mobile first. If you're not building mobile first, you really need to think long and hard about your business or you have to have a very good strategic reason for doing it. And I think that's even true of business banking. You know, everybody would say, oh, yeah, you know, start with mobile for consumers now, but business still happens in the web browser and we're starting to see businesses realize that even in that space mobile first is the way to go. So the mobile money thing to me I think is becoming a little bit of an anachronism. It's just money now.
1: So Mitch, the platform play because maybe that's also what is is trendy now to think about domination in in the fintech space in platform terms. So I think Safaricom within the East African context but MTN, I think, pan-Africa wise, seen as potentially the strongest potential mobile telco-led platform play in mobile money. Potentially, if they were to get things right, you know, or Libra, potentially this amazing platform play led by Facebook. That was the hype, at least when the Calibra network was was being you know tabled as this amazing idea. Uh, Bitcoin as this decentralized platform play. PayPal, Visa, the banks, in some respects, some banks, F&B, thinking of themselves, I think, by and large, at least in the South African context, as a platform unto themselves and not you know, willing or you know, terribly interested in sharing space on that platform with anyone who might play on top of it or you know, plug into it in, in ways that they feel they have birthright to. Is this a constructive framework for thinking about things? Why or why not? And how do you guys think about it at OZA?
0: so definitely what, what you mentioned in the closed loop thing exists and the closed loop cannot it's not scalable i don't think that's scalable so you have to get agnostic on everything uh so bank agnostic even currency agnostic with regards to the facebook the libra thing i think facebook has somewhat tainted themselves but they have the ability to reskin themselves and show themselves differently to people uh, so i mean the the purchase of whatsapp in Instagram, I think, is quite important to them. Facebook itself is tainted, but Instagram and WhatsApp, not really. And uh, they're definitely going to get the young people out of that. I think you cannot aim at the older generation at this point. You have to aim for the younger people and find solutions for them. Uh, yeah, find a level of IoT yeah brought into that now if you look at these uh, all the companies that you've mentioned um, a lot of them are not going into that sphere of iot probably only facebook being the leader of this and google maybe yeah maybe Definitely. maybe google <laughs> maybe google i feel like google listens to all my chats and reads my emails and then gets my ideas from that
1: totally they they totally do they totally do yeah
0: no, I've, I've seen many times i've emailed a friend an idea and,
1: and a week later or two weeks later it's Comes out, the Google product. How did that happen? My wife and I would be, never mind, let me not get taken that deep. (laughs) But I mean, it's been that ridiculous. Like listening to our bedside conversation and we start to see ads. You were talking about the platform play, uh, and, um, the role of IoT. It
0: needs to be, it needs to be agnostic, definitely agnostic. And, and for one player to make themselves agnostic and, and kind of to relinquish their power that they would gain if they got the scale is going to be a difficult thing. It's, it's kind of like a Rob Mugabe coming into power, you know? He had all the good intentions in the eighties and, uh, people loved him and, and he, he brought some great stuff to the nation. But eventually, uh, power got the best of him. So, I mean, that's that's where this distributed network of Bitcoin comes into play for me uh, and blockchain. I like that, um, that there's, there's really nobody that really owns anything there. And it's just this joint consensus of, call it civil society, that uh, decides how things should work and, and a reconciliation that happens between that. So, I think blockchain is the key to this. Uh, blockchain in the back and then uh and creating software on top of that
1: okay so philosophically and i suppose i think it's fair to say the case for that's being made practically as well but in the meantime i mean in the short to medium term you've got the likes of opay backed by opera you've got the likes of transient sort of making its bets building out what some people say is one of the more impressive potential platform plays you've got the likes of uber and airbnb i mean Again, I mean, the, the, this whole COVID-19 thing is going to change a lot of things for a lot of businesses in that space. But I just wonder, this zero-sum vibe that I'm getting around this land grab, the space race to to ubiquity. I, I just wonder, you know, specific to South Africa or Southern Africa, whether that's a dynamic that's actually at play or that you sense in the market as you work day to day yeah
0: well i think i alluded to it earlier when i was speaking about we we're in a land grab at the moment so it is about getting as many people to sign up for your service as possible to try it out and basically to become the tastic stick in the rice aisle uh, so that in generations to come when somebody says to a payment you use you, by default in your mind i'm gonna ozo somebody you know you
1: need to own that word it, it needs to become a, a, the verb but Growing up in South Africa or even in Southern Africa, Tastic was the rice. It's parboiled rice. It's, it's terrible. It's got nothing on basmati <laughs> or jasmine. But it's what, it's what a lot of us grew up thinking was the rice to buy. And it, it was just well-branded relative to a lot of other rices and it had this distinctive taste. And so you're saying... Um, there's a space race to being the tactic of the rice. Yeah, so
0: you you just need to be basically the, the, the forefront thing that people think about when it comes to payments, and that must be passed on to the next generation, to the next generation. I like um, Jack Ma's view on things. I mean, he's a teacher, uh, formerly a teacher, and, and he took that philosophy of teaching and he put it into Alibaba. And within 20 years, he became this massive giant. Uh, He said he's never, ever had a business plan. His business plan was letters people would send him uh, saying, thank you, you've helped me to feed my family. He he was broke for a lot of the beginning of that business, but never had to pay for anything because every store he walked in, they never, ever charged him because he gave the platform for them to do this stuff. Today in China, I think Alibaba has made more millionaires than any other company in the world. So... That in itself just means time, time with with a focus on something, time, energy, effort put into a uh, into a part and stirred for, but is going to result in something great.
1: And is that the guiding premise at at a place like Ozo? So like you
0: have to move fast, but you also have to have the long term view on it, and that's I think we're lucky enough to have investors that have that same view. They don't want their money out immediately; uh, they're in this for the long haul. And uh, honestly, 20 years moves fast. And I don't think it will take 20 years. I think uh, five to 10 years, but possibly even five years. It's uh, If I look, we've been running for five years and now we've grown in five years. Without a lot of money and now with a lot of backing uh, good investors
1: behind us. Who's given you money just out of interest? So
0: there's a 12J fund.
1: So 12J is an investment vehicle that offers tax incentives for investors uh, interested in backing high risk investments. For the most part, I think it's been exploited mostly by tech firms uh, looking to to attract VC. So you guys have landed um, money via that vehicle? So one of them, yeah, so that's k uh, uh,
0: They've given us money over and over again uh, through their fund. Our, our initial seed investment was from Popeye Media, which is to be part of the Creative Council, which got bought by Publicis in France. And when those guys got to buy out, then they just took some money and gave it to us. Uh well and give it to us invested. It. Yeah, so and then you got investment corporation called Buffett Investment, not Warren Buffett. There's a guy called Jonathan Bay. He owns quite a lot of property around the world, specifically in South Africa. He has an investment arm called uh Buffett Investment. They are primarily property investors, but at the point when we were looking for funds, the market uh property market wasn't doing too well, so they thought, let's diversify and put it into tech. And so they gave us seed capital in the beginning. These days, we have a few other companies that have invested. I can't disclose that as yet because we're finalizing a few things. But uh, we, we're part of the
1: Endeavor Group. You're into your Series B now? Series A. Series A. Oh, so series this was a. all so seed. All of that was, was seed.
0: Yeah. And now we just conclude in a Series A. There's been a bit of uh, a few speed bumps on the way. But um, I would love to tell you the guys, because you, you guys will get excited about it. But we have big media houses, global companies wanting to invest in us. It's just, tax-wise, things don't make sense. Brand, where you put your IP, it's, it's all important. Because uh, you guys are registered, you're domiciled in South Africa. In South Africa, yeah. And uh, look, I'm very emotionally attached to Africa, so... Well,
1: also, the Reserve Bank in South Africa is not about to play with you if you're based in Mauritius. At least not in this game, surely.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, and obviously international VCs won dollars in and dollars out. Yeah. And if you look at what just happened over this COVID-19 thing, um, yeah, the Rand lost out quite big time. So it is quite difficult to get that part going, but, uh, we, we, we're busy working on something. We have some solutions there. So yeah, as founders, we still own the majority of the company, which is great. Well done to you. Um, and yeah, we, we push pushing to be a unicorn. Obviously, uh, I don't know with the RAM fluctuation. Yeah, that, that, that goalpost keeps moving. we are we doing our, our billion processing more often now. So it's going to go monthly and then probably bi-weekly. So hopefully by, by the end of this year, we would at least hit a billion dollars. Sorry,
2: in volumes processed or in valuation? Oh,
0: no, valuation is far away from that. <laughs> I think we're probably oh, closer okay. to $100 million at this point. But uh, yeah, a billion dollars,
1: give us five years. No, also we were speaking in RAN just then. Uh, with regards to the processing? Yes, with regards to the processing. Yes. All RANs. All RANs, yeah, 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 So yeah, do the math on that, guys. The RAN's not doing great. I think it's like 1 to 17 odds. Was it 1 to 16? 17 and 71 yesterday. Yeah. yeah, to the US dollar. So there you go. There or thereabouts. I was just wondering, Simon, You know what it'll take for lettuce to stand out in the vegetable aisle. <laughs> See what <laughs> I did there?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we're sort of building it conspicuously, uh, Andile. So I don't have a business plan either. I don't believe in them. Uh, it's another form of astrology. My co-founder, Kenny Ings, who's probably the most experienced CTO in fintech, and that's that's my opinion, but he's built three core banking systems and been involved in, uh, I've lost count of how many uh, fintech startups now, aside from being a head architect at Microsoft. He's got the saying where he says, the plan is irrelevant, but planning is everything. So for us, it's just a, its an ongoing thing we're doing every day, You know, taking what we've learned, changing our plans, throwing out the old plan, bringing in a new plan, uh, and learning from our customers, that's why we pushed our prototype into the app store. It's really not much of an app yet. But the sooner we we get out there and start measuring the right things, the quicker we'll find a direction. The one thing I will tell you about business plans is that I, I'm yet to see one that aligned with reality. I haven't seen a single business plan that played out the way the founders of the company thought it would. <laughs> it's like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face. And if you want to get punched in the face very quickly, launch a business. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I-, I wonder what sort of pressures you're feeling around growing quickly or outpacing other people you see sort of vying for the same space like what sort of pressures are you dealing with in your space
2: to be honest we we don't have that pressure and i'll I'll tell you why it's because in fintech at the moment the barrier to entry on features is so low you can trip over it you know we've got new regulatory frameworks where with very little effort you can be compliant and you can do almost anything you want to so We don't see a feature set as a differentiator. For us, the differentiator is in the customer experience, and that's where the magic happens because it's the same sort of dynamics that made Facebook successful, for example. It wasn't a feature set. Facebook had the same features as as MySpace. That's not why they won. They won because they offered a better customer experience, and that's where the magic is, and that's where all the complexity lies in differentiating a, a consumer front end. So that's sort of where we are fixated um, and now I've forgotten what your question was because I got a little bit carried away on my high horse there again.
1: <laughs> you were actually answering the question because I was like, what are some of the t- tensions ah, yes.
2: you're, you're having to deal
1: with as far <laughs> as, you know, as far as like the urgency?
2: I think we, we're very lucky in that our aim is, is to not have another funding round. You know, this is my fourth fintech startup. Uh, well, B2C fintech startup. What I haven't enjoyed in the previous businesses I've been involved with is that our obsession has been around the next funding round, and that tended to creep into the product. It's a little bit like when a company goes public, you know, the bottom line becomes the obsession, the share price becomes the obsession, and the products start to eerily take shape around that obsession.
1: Isn't that an existential concern if you've got a certain kind of investor? You know, with certain expectations, you
2: know, again, uh, please don't, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. I'm saying this is this is what we've chosen to do, right? So we want to build a business that delivers massive value to our customers, that they're willing to pay for so that we can be profitable, wipe our own nose and not rely on on subsequent funding rounds uh, to get us through another year. So that's what I want to get to as fast as possible. And there's a small cohort, but growing cohort of companies around the world that are moving in this direction. So one of them is Basecamp. I'm a big fan of what Jason Fried and and David Hanemeyer Hansen have achieved in their business. Ghost, my friend John O'Nolan's business, is another example of this kind of business. Uh, Buffer, there are a whole bunch of them that do business the old-fashioned way. We make profit and and we manage to pay everybody and there's nominal growth every year and our shareholders are happy. Uh, if we have any, preferably we have as few as possible. Very old fashioned, but um, after going through three high growth startups that raised shit tons of money off of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of valuation and are yet to make any profits for themselves, prefer this way of doing business. But please understand, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just this is the way we want to be now. No,
1: I mean, you're, you're playing my violin there. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of like old school return to fundamentals, that sort of, you know, school of thought. But if my regular co host Osaruman was here, he talks about dealing with the world as it is and not as we'd like it to be. So I suppose my question to you both, but maybe you, Mitch, first is there a version of winning at fintech in Southern Africa, South Africa first, but in the rest of the region, that doesn't involve buying into hyperscale, hyper growth, thinking, taking on VC, growing as fast as possible, outpacing rivals? land grabs is there a way to approach this without that kind of thinking being the driving factor
0: like simon said this is my opinion on things uh i don't think so at all It also it it depends on your measure of success if if your measure of success is uh having a hundred thousand rand a month and you're the only employee of the company and that's what you need to get through the month then yes then then you can do it. But it depends on your vision, mission and purpose and all of those things that you set up in your mind. Uh, If you want this thing to have a certain impact on so many people and all of that, then no, you you can't just uh, have the small scale thing and you're going to need funding to get through it. Look, my my upbringing, I come from not the wealthiest uh, neighborhoods and environments, lots of gangsterism and drugs and stuff and everything there. And you kind of add this hopeless picture of your future. Where'd you grow up? In Rivoli, in, in Johannesburg. So I, I didn't even think about studying further than school. Uh, to me, it was, I would just chill at the shops and ask for five rand and play tata box, but, uh, which is foosball. <laughs> um, but yeah, my father obviously had higher hopes for me and he, he kept on pushing me past that. And the thing is, I'm still in contact with many people with great ideas, but they all stuck in this hole. Um, and they will pull you down into that hole. And I try and bring those guys out of that hole and say, come out here, check the sunlight out, see what's available. But the 100% reality of everything is like, the world today has a, a, quite a massive, massive gap with the e- equality. The inequality is massive. And, and so you need the funding to come through there. One of my goals is to set up an accelerator uh, outside of the affluent areas. I mean, all accelerators exist in Sandton, Rosebank, somewhat in the CBD. Nothing out here, nothing in the south, nothing really in the west, nothing outside in the east. We need to get it split out a bit more. We need to get the funds uh, moving a bit more into all these other ideas. Uh, and these guys are never going to grow. It's it's not also about the product, it's about the business. And so the product can get released great and and, and as Simon said, yeah, the features are there on MySpace already and then Mark Zuckerberg came on Facebook and what well, you just added status if you're single or not. That's not the difference the, between the companies. It's the way you ran it and the way the user experienced it. So it's about getting your support system in place. It's about having a, a good accounting system, good operations, good marketing. Uh, you know, having an R and D department and not just dev. And that's what creates a business and, and takes it from a product to the next level. But these guys are not getting that information, and the only way to get that is through mentorship and funding, which is why I think accelerators are a big thing. We're part of endeavor, and endeavor's helped us a lot. I think Endeavor's whole thing was about emerging markets and to find, not particularly Fintechs, but startups in all It started out in Argentina or Brazil, I think. And, uh, and today they're all over the world, and they've created this network of what you would call an old boys club type thing where you could request a meeting with a big CEO and that guy would be willing to help you and mentor you. I think it's very important to have these things. And and yeah, the, the reality of the world is if, if we just organically try and start a company, it's not going to work out.
1: By the way, Endeavor is still one of the networks I, I kind of rate, not just because of the acceleration vibe, but really because of the almost mastermind network vibe. Like you say, Simon... In your own way, like you're solving for that, whether you realize it or not by being Simon <laughs> and the way you're plugged into the world of what would be some of the earlier successes in fintech to come out of south africa but also your co-founder in your case also those links and networks and experience drawn from places like microsoft i just think it's important as we talk about this as you know simon will tell you like i talk about oversimplification being the enemy on this show and i think it's really important when we try and create a context for people understanding the nature of the unique markets that are represented on the African continent, in this case, South Africa mostly, but that it's not just about like having great ideas or you know hosting hackathons or even being part of an accelerator program. It's adding the layers you've described on top of that, being able to execute successfully, having the right sort of caliber founding team in place, having access to, to finance in times like these when it's quite clear that anyone who hasn't raised significantly uh, in the lead up to what we're going through right now with COVID-19 is probably not going to survive this patch. And at that point, it becomes quite obvious that you can have all the best ideas. You can even have people who love you. You can be doing work that's important and needs to happen and should exist. But if you don't have the funds, you're just not going to make it through. And so that's my question to you guys as well. I I asked this question earlier on, which is, is, is it fair to say, like as a proxy for the companies or the startups that are being knighted by incumbents and by the market, to succeed or survive this situation, is it fair to see anyone who's raising now to see that as a proxy for these people are being knighted? I mean, I'll, I'll cite someone like Revolut who've just landed like a ridiculous sum, like I think over half a billion or something like that. Is it fair to say that's definitely a signal to note who people are basically giving the nod to survive or to stay alive uh, versus you know people who maybe. I was just going to have to figure things out um, or just have to say goodbye.
0: I remember when we started out, I was quite jealous of companies uh, that already made it. The likes of Y-Code that got like a hundred million. And there's a company called Flutterwave in Nigeria. They keep getting money all the time from the States. And I kind of get jealous of that. And I also, in my mind build up the story that they are just selling us this African story. But you know, if, I, if we were in Nigeria selling that story, we would get much better because our tech is better. And, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, everything in its own time, right. When you are there, you'll get knighted. It took us five years to get to where we are now. I'm sure there's this company starting up today, looking at us saying, you know, if only we had that opportunity, that point. But I do remember there being a company that rose up and I, I kind of thought to myself, we missed that opportunity. If we started two years earlier, we would have been in that. And we would have been part of the regulation change.
1: A fintech business?
0: Yeah. Ah. And, and there was a regulation change that happened and we would have been part of that and we would have went with it. Uh, for instance, like like a Safaricom type thing with Mpeza. To, to create your e-wallet right now, it's just too late to do that. But things happen things change and and the, as long as there's problems in the world there are solutions and if you come up with a solution you can sell that solution that's what i love about south africa as much as there's so many issues that means there's so many opportunities mm. so we, sh- we should just solve for them uh look at solutions that's that's what my uh, co-founder thomas pays currently our ceo keeps saying to me we are solutions based we're not uh you don't look at the problems. We
1: recognize the problem, and then we sit down and we discuss the solution together. So did you feel some kind of way when PayU was invited to be part of the Calibra network? And, <laughs>
0: and uh, Pay, PayU, they were our first distribution partner. So, what? I, mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they, they resell our product under them. So if they get in, we get in. Oh, so it's all it's, about so, partnerships. So
1: you guys are technically part of the Libra network. <laughs> uh, I guess so, technically, <laughs> but but not really. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean much right now. I have to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, we we were in we were in Amsterdam as well. We met with the leads the there as well. They they were looking. I can't give you too much information on this. Yeah. But yeah, they, we we in talks with them. Uh, we. We've, we've been friends for the past I think years. you're right to be
1: careful because I know definitely the head of policy listens to the show. So well, I, I really genuinely did not know that. I, it was, I was actually thinking that was going to be like a doozy question on some. I did wonder, you know, what other people who had been left out of the initial network, who weren't in, invited to the table. And I wondered what they were thinking secretly. And it's interesting because I thought you'd be one of those people to be like, well, we thought some kind of way, but here you are in, at the table by proxy via pay you. Who knew? I, I think we're
0: sitting outside in the in the waiting hallway, and people are dining inside. But I mean, it's we, yeah, we have we have an avenue. You're holding the avenue. coats.
1: You're holding the coats. Yeah. yeah. But listen, it's been an incredible show. I've learned so much uh, having you both on, and I want us to end with something that's literally cropped up in the last 48 hours or so the news that there's a bill that the the house of democrats want to float to congress as a way forward to basically solve for this this disaster that has befallen the world and uh, a stimulus package which among other things includes their hope for the creation of a digital dollar and the establishment of digital dollar wallets. I read an article by Jason Britt in Forbes magazine detailing this. It's worth checking out. We'll put it in the show notes as well. I wonder what you guys think about the times we're in and how the world's never going to be the same in ways that just two weeks ago, you know, we could not have contemplated. And what what do you guys envisage?
2: Well, economically, for one, and we're seeing the U.S. do what they always do in times of economic crisis, which is print more money. Um, and this time, we're going into multiples of trillions of dollars that are being printed. So it's the central banking system doing what they always do, which is devalue currency and betray public trust. It happened in 2009, and it's happening now again. Central banks do a lot of things right. They also do a lot of things wrong. But fundamentally, the ability for the U.S. to just print as much money as it wants. I mean, we literally had senators this week telling the American people they've got infinity money. Of course they do. They can print as much as they want. They're the world's reserve currency. So the ramifications of this economically are going to be massive. Luckily, in South Africa, we've been smart and we've gotten ahead of the curve. We've emulated what's been happening in South Korea. We're going to weather the storm. But Except we don't have as robust a,
1: a healthcare service as South Korea does, but I'm hoping you know, we'll we'll solve for well, that. Well,
2: that's interesting. We, we've actually got more um, hospital beds per capita than the United States does. We've got more ventilators per capita than most of Europe. So actually, I don't think we are too badly off on that front. What I hate, though, is this narrative that people have where they think the discussion is between staying at home and ruining the economy or risking getting sick and saving the economy. And overlooking the massive economic impact, the disaster that'll happen if millions of people get sick and die, especially if this virus gets out there into the poorest of the poor in Africa, and we start to see social disruption, looting, borders being swamped, like what would the economic impact of that be? It would be you know multipliers worse than us staying at home for a month and the economic impact of that, which is going to be bad. But not anywhere near as bad as the impact of millions of people getting sick and dying. So, you know, I think we're starting to wake up to some realities. I think this is a good dress rehearsal for a real pandemic. I'm not saying that COVID-19 isn't a real pandemic, but you can imagine another bug breaking out that is much more contractable. You know, that the transmission rates are much worse of, and that has a higher mortality rate. And what would happen then? So. I think it's good that we're catching a wake-up call about how serious these things are and how ill-prepared we are for them in so many ways. And then we're seeing some positive things as well, like this next month is going to be fantastic for the environment. (laughs) There are less planes in the sky. Well, the digital dollar is ridiculous because um, 99% of dollars are already digital, so it's a meaningless statement. Like, yes, now they're going to have a wallet so that the Fed can come (laughs) and fetch your dollars out of your account directly, but... The dollar's already digital, so I don't know what they mean by that.
1: Also, of course, these are digital dollars that presumably Africa's going to be offered by way of aid uh, to mop up all the, the, the fallout for, for not responding in
2: time. Look, I, you know, again, as you said, I'm a pathological optimist, so I see a lot of upsides to us coming out of this. It's going to be a brutal time. It's going to be a very difficult time. A lot of people are going to get sick. Most of us are going to get this virus. That's just a reality. Um, hopefully, we'll have vaccines soon, etc. But I think it's teaching us again about how connected the world is um, how much better we off we are when we work together instead of you know driving wedges between us. It's teaching entire generations about the power of the internet. Like seeing my parents transform their businesses using Zoom and Slack and all the tools we've been using for the last five to ten years, and going, wow, this really works. And hey, I can hang out with my friends overseas and have a drink over the internet. Isn't that cool? You know, socially, it's changing so much. And I think societally, there are going to be a lot of positives coming out of this, but it's going to be a very difficult first. And I, you know, I'm just standing here sort of postulating and hypothesizing, um, not being an economist, a sociologist, an epidemiologist, a, a virologist, or anybody who would qualify to speak on these matters. You're mantis. a hopeless
1: optimist. That, that'll, that'll suffice, man. It's all right. That's me. But uh, do you know, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was just thinking, Mitch. I mean, lots of research. I've got a, a PhD buddy of mine who who did who actually did uh, some research into just how different South African adoption habits around digital money is relative to, to other um, African markets. And he's not alone. There's quite, you know, there are a few studies here and there. There's also anecdotal evidence to show that South Africa hasn't been the most receptive to mobile money, to the use of cards necessarily, or, you know, anything that isn't, frankly, cash. And you indicated at the top of the show that you guys are seeing a massive uptick in in your business. And I just wonder what the landscape might look like in a South Africa where, you know, just digital payments are literally for everybody, not just people with jobs, not just people with smartphones or who understand how to work one. And I imagine you relish that prospect because it's going to be great for your business. But what does that world look like as a result of all of this?
0: I mean, I, I did... Leave our one guy, but I guess I can I can mention this name because um, he's finished the first part of our series. A. So there's a guy called Francois Krupa. He's the ex deputy governor of uh, South African Reserve Bank, mm. Um, mm. and he's mm. he's now an investor in our company. So- I felt that name drop hard. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's he always calls me a radical because we we always have in these debates, and I don't believe gold or anything. I, I don't believe economies are based on economies at the moment. You can't have more debt in the world than what there is money in the world. Uh who are we gonna borrow from the aliens, you know? So it's I think it's just a system that's now failed somewhat and we're trying to tweak it to make it work somehow. And that's why I feel like uh, yeah Bitcoin is probably a better currency. It makes more sense to me right now. But on- he's he's mentioned about having a digital currency within South Africa and that this, the South African Reserve Bank has thought about it. And technically, it's very easy to implement, but the security aspect of it is what they worry about. At the moment, uh, to steal actual cash, you have to put on your mask and go into the bank and tell everybody to stick their hands up and get that cash and run out with the notes. Um, but now you can just, you know, hack into a system and get it and transfer it somewhere else. That, he says, is the worry about going into a fully digital system within a country. But if you look at what India did, like one day, they just said, everybody, no more paper money, you know, no more coins. It, it won't work tomorrow. That transition was a massive thing and it was a surprise. I don't know if you can kind of prepare people for it. You have to surprise them to give them that shock. And that's what gave Paytm the, the rise to where they are now. Uh, in Lagos, for instance, the cash there, I had new notes when I was there, surprisingly enough, but I did get an old note. It looks like an old carpet. It's not healthy to have this stuff going around. So there is this saying called cash is king. And I've seen a few articles it's within like, this last week that said, could the king, you know, step down now?
1: Especially if the king is found to be like a conduit of this dreaded virus. And it exactly. becomes the, the most ridiculous backward thing to promote its circulation.
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, I do believe that. Again, it, it comes down to regulation. Uh, no fintech, no bank can do this on their own. The government must decide. The president is going to have to keep us waiting for two hours before he steps out again and says, hey, we are now going digital. But he has to surprise us. He can't set us up for this because what's going to happen is people are going to start withdrawing all their money and uh, something crazy will happen. So he has to just surprise everybody yeah. and switch the switch over. Just like that. And... uh some people win, some people will lose, but the thing is we'll switch over and then cash will just die like that.
1: A la India. Yeah. <laughs> and so th- I think it's gonna be a really interesting time to be in fintech. So if you if you'll permit me, guys, I'll I'll definitely be in touch with you guys to hear how the things are going down. Yeah, cool.
0: definitely. Hopefully we have our e-wallet by then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, that would be a thing, man. Listen, uh, I wonder what your take on this whole COVID 19 situation is um, in your part of the world, in your part of the continent. Also, thinking about the potential impact it might have on the financial services status quo, we've all come to sort of accept as the way things are, and this whole new wave of fintech that is uh, changing things up, and now everybody needing to shimmy, duck and weave in the light of what is the most unprecedented pandemics of modern history. It's going to be a fascinating couple of years. And I don't want to make light of all the suffering that's accompanying this trend. So it's not jovial vibes you're sensing. It's really hopeful vibes for what could be hopefully some good to come out of a really bad situation. Tell us what you think. Please drop us a line. We're on social. Find us on Twitter at African Roundup. Also at African Roundup on Instagram. Uh, You can reach us on Facebook, facebook facebook.com, African Tech Roundup. Or drop us an email hello at africantechroundup.com is the email address um we'd really love to hear how what you make of everything we've discussed um disagree if you must uh we'd love to to hear any contrarian views perhaps there's things you've said or heard that have spurred you into action in some meaningful way we'd love to hear about that i must thank my guests on the show starting first with my co-host with the most (laughs) simon dingle man thanks so much for being on the show thanks dude anytime And um, our special guest, Mitchum Adams of OZO. All the best to you and your co founder Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, uh, (laughs) Andile. Absolutely. Simon, I forgot to to drop this one. Uh, Here's to keeping that lettuce fresh, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Very funny.
0: (laughs) Simon, perhaps there's also a partnership opportunity between us, uh, it sounds sounds like. A
2: dude, there definitely is, not in Lettuce, but in one of my other businesses. However, I doubt your banking partner is going to want to work with us, but let's take it offline.
0: <laughs> we, we we banking rebels,
1: so we don't care if they don't want to work with you.
2: Then we, <laughs> then we definitely need to talk, dude.
1: <laughs> okay that's good news so here's a, here's the a thing actually you have just reminded me now I mean talking about partnerships I don't know how I completely forgot to ask about a partnership I read about you guys doing something with Binance uh,
2: yeah that's true so my holding company Invest Capital we're a strategic partner of Binance's both here and in Europe um, and possibly elsewhere soon too so We do some work with Binance behind the scenes, yeah. Mm. All right. Listen, guys, it's been
1: fantastic learning from you guys. I will definitely be letting you go now properly. Thank you so much for being on the show. And everybody else, please stay safe and do take it easy, Africa.